We are the church militant. Don't let it escape your notice. And they, verse 20, went out. They were determined to submit to General Jesus' orders. They marched forth in boldness because they knew they were not marching forth alone. And the same is true of you and I. We go out because we know He's already there. We've been indwelt by the Spirit of God who is sovereign over every soul that will ever be saved. And with confidence, we preach the Gospel. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. This morning, I want you to take your Bibles for the last time and be turning to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 16. Uh, This morning, we were going to look at verses 9 through 20, which are printed there in your copy of Scripture, but I want to begin reading in verse 1 of Mark 16, just to set things in their context, and I want you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word as I pick up in verse 1. Mark writes, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him, that is Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, it was very large, And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb For trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, so they mourned and wept. But when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country, and they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves, and they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, "'Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation.'" Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. 
Please be seated and we'll pray to our Lord once again. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the gift of Mark's gospel. We thank you for the truths that have been presented which we can rely upon because your word is inspired. And Lord, we pray as we close out our study this morning of this wonderfully rich gospel that we might have ears to hear and eyes to see everything that your spirit would speak to us about from the Holy Scriptures. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You have probably heard the quote from St. Jerome who said that the scriptures are shallow enough for a babe to come and drink without fear of drowning and yet deep enough for theologians to swim in without ever reaching the bottom. It was a great preacher of our own generation who said that the Bible is not the book of the week, the Bible is not the book of the month, the Bible is not the book of the year, the Bible is a book for the ages. You hold in your laps what we refer to as the Holy Scriptures because they are inspired by God. And because they are inspired by God, they are trustworthy. In spite of all the attacks, and there is an all-out assault on the Word of God by the devil himself, the Bible is trustworthy. Satan may attack Scripture from several points. He attacks it from critics. There are a number of critics, higher textual critics in the theological world, theological liberalism, uh, that will attack the Scriptures and say you can't trust everything that's written in the Gospels. Some even come up with estimates that say because of their study of the Gospels, we can only believe about 18% of what Jesus said in the Gospels. That's a bunch of bunk. You have the critics, you have the cultists, who not only add to Scripture by their charismatic leaders who supposedly have seen visions, but they also subtract from the Scriptures from faulty interpretations. You have the critics, you have the cultists, and then you have the charismatics, really very common in the 20th century, who don't prize the Bible as much as they should. They rely upon what they call signs, Tongues, prophecies, all of that sort of thing. Jeremiah warns us about these things. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you and everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart. They say no disaster will come upon you for who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord, Jeremiah says, to see and to hear his word or who has paid attention to his word and listened, not false prophets. But then you have the culture and it's really that modern naturalistic understanding of the 20th century uh, that came down to us that said science can explain everything that is now morphed into our own current day of postmodernism, which says that there's no such thing as universal truth. And ironically, a statement such as that needs to be challenged by the very people that make it. And yet our culture has imbibed these notions so that truth has become essentially highly personalized. Your truth can be whatever you want your truth to be. And then there has come on the horizon the great awakening in which Neo-Marxism says that the greatest cultural virtue is tolerance. 
Unless, of course, you're speaking about white European Western civilization, and that's the only thing we can't tolerate. We cannot uh, tolerate that point of history, and out of that point of history has come the Bible, which has made the Bible so popular, was Western European history. They have attacked not only history, they have attacked the very Word of God. So it can be the critics, the cultists, the charismatics, our own culture. And all of this is really just carnal wisdom uh, that Satan has used a culmination of all of these things to marshal an attack upon the church, to infiltrate the church, to give a worldview to younger people and older people alike that either ignores the word of God or is hostile to the thinking and worldview in which the prophets and apostles give to us as they wrote under inspiration in the Word of God. Now I want you to understand this morning, the Bible indeed is an ancient book, but it's not the only ancient book. For example, if you read history, you'll come across Aristotle's Poetics, a prized piece of history that is depended upon by historians and scholars. We have about a dozen copies of Aristotle's Poetics, the earliest coming some 1,000 years after Aristotle wrote it. We also have the ancient work referred to as Caesar's Gaelic Wars, a very, very important ancient work. We have 10 manuscripts of this old, old work, Gaelic Wars, also about 1,000 years from which they were originally written are these copies. We have Herodosius's ancient manuscripts, his history, of which we have about eight manuscripts, of the earliest dating some 1,300 years after the original. All of that is amazing, but then we come to Homer's Iliad. And Homer's Iliad doesn't just have eight copies, ten copies, a dozen copies, it has 643 copies the earliest of which is some 2,000 years from the original. Now, it's important to say we don't have any of the originals of these texts that historians depend upon. And we don't have the originals of the Scriptures, what theologians call the autographs. But here's what we do have. We possess 5,000 manuscripts of the Old and New Testament. Second to that is Homer's Iliad, which is... 643. It's not even close that the Bible is the most ancient book that has the most consistent and reliable testimony. And it doesn't come, the earliest copies don't come a thousand years after the Bible was completed. No, the earliest copies come from some 20, 30, or 40 years from the last book of the Bible written. Really, that's amazing. The manuscript history is fascinating, and it's extremely important for you to understand. For example, just taking the New Testament into account, when the Apostle Paul wrote down the words of Scripture, which were epistles that he sent to the churches, he wrote it on some piece of parchment or some piece of papyrus. He would then give this um, to someone who would hand-deliver the letter to a specific church, and that church would hire a scribe who would copy down what Paul wrote, or some person in their church who gave great attention to detail would copy down what Paul wrote, and then that letter would then be circulated to other churches 
who undoubtedly would do the same thing. They'd copy from the original and they would have it as a library in their possession. Inevitably, the original copy would be lost, but it wouldn't matter because you had all of these other copies. And then by the second century, you had Christians essentially inventing what we know of today as a book. Before that, all you had were scrolls. It was Christians who developed what was called a codex, which is like a modern-day book so it could be easy for carrying. In 303, AD 303, Diocletian ordered the burning of all Christians and the burning of all the Scriptures. There was massive persecution, but by God's sovereignty in the year 313, when Constantine came to the throne, he signed an edict. It was called the Edict of Milan in which he ended the persecution of Christians. And this is where you need to really pay attention because this period in church history, what followed was a massive undertaking of copying the Scriptures. For example, the emperor told church father Eusebius that he wanted 50 copies of the Scriptures just for one city in the empire, Constantinople. A staggering number of copies of the Scriptures. And then you have from the 4th century on, the Bible being copied by scribes who were monks. Their job was so demanding and so serious that severe penalties were imposed for undisciplined monks. For example, you would go on a diet of bread and water if you were found delinquent in your duties. If your parchment wasn't neat and your area wasn't cleaned, you would be fined. If a monk stole a piece of parchment from another monk because they were all given an allotment and they wanted to make sure nothing was added to Scripture or taken away from Scripture, so if you stole a piece of parchment, that meant you made a mistake on your piece of parchment. You took a piece from him, you would be fined. If you used more glue on the codex, you would be fined. And if you broke your pen and you smudged ink on the parchment, you would be fined. It was taken extremely seriously. And even with that sort of strictness, you can imagine inevitably there would be some mistakes in copying. And yet, scholars tell us that for the New Testament, it is essentially 99.5% reliable because it's 99.5% consistent. For example, Codex Vaticanus, one of the two earliest Full copies of the entire New Testament misspells the word John. That's right. Misspells the word John. In the Greek, it's the Greek letter new, and there are two news or two ends in the word John in Greek. He only wrote one. One scribe made that mistake. It's easy to clarify. We know he's speaking about John. He just misspelled it. None of these Variations affect any major doctrine or the meaning of Scripture. The second largest of the variations concerns word order. So for example, there might be a misspelling that results in an insertion of a strange word. I'll give you an example. One scribe got one letter of one word wrong. So he translated Luke 6.41, the way that it reads in the Bible is, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye and not notice the log that is in your eye? Well, he translated it, why do you see the fruit that is in your brother's eye but not notice the log that is in your own eye? And you say, why would he do that? Well, it's simple. He used the word karpos, which is the word for fruit, instead of karphos, which is the word for speck. He got one letter off. 
Now, over a period of time, the catalog of these thousands upon thousands of manuscripts became so large, that's a good problem to have, but it was so large and so difficult to sort through that two men in the 1800s by the name of Westcott and Hort began to categorize these manuscripts into various textual families. The concept was simple. The manuscripts were grouped based on the geography where they were copied. And there were four textual families. They were ranked in order of what these scholars believed to be the most accurate textual families. The Alexandrian family, the Caesarean family, the Western family, the Byzantine family. This was a cataloging of the manuscripts. So to put this in sort of practical perspective for you, if you're using a King James Version of Scripture or a New King James Version of Scripture, that Bible that you hold in your hand was based on the Byzantine family of manuscripts. It actually comes from Erasmus's translation of the Greek New Testament in which he depended upon not of the entire Byzantine family of texts but only six or seven manuscripts. And that is why in our modern day you have translations like the New American Standard and uh, the ESV which is what we use and many other modern translations because since the 1600s, since the King James translation first came out, it is considered by scholars that we have discovered more manuscripts and more reliable and older manuscripts. For example, the Byzantine family of manuscripts on, on which the King James is relied upon, the earliest manuscripts are from the 10th century on. But these older manuscripts that we have date all the way back to like A.D. 100, A.D. 120, 20 or 30 years from the completion of the New Testament. Now this background finally brings us to our text under consideration today. Matthew 16, verses 9 through 20. Look at your Bibles. You will notice in between verse 8 and verse 9, there will be a a little phrase that says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Now, if you're using a King James Version or a a New King James Version, it won't say that because when the New King James and King James came out, they were relying upon a family of manuscripts that were from the 10th century on, which all included this phrase. But now you know why you have that sort of caveat. Some of the earliest manuscripts are not, do not include these verses. It's because older ones have been found, which leads scholars to say that Mark himself, listen to this, did not originally pen verses 9 through 20. Now, whether he did or not doesn't take away from the trustworthiness of the Bible. I just gave you a whole bunch of statistics which clearly tell us there is not any ancient book in all of the history of the world that even comes close to the manuscripts we have for the Bible. 5,000 coming almost immediately after the original words were written down. There are various ways in which people view verses 9 through 20, and I'm sure you're curious as to my opinion on this. I'm sure you might have your own opinion on this, and we'll get to those views in a moment. But I want you to turn with me to 2 Peter 1 just 
for a couple of minutes because I want to set this up, generally speaking, from the words that Peter gives us in 2 Peter 1, verses 16 through 21. Scripture itself attests to its own reliability. In other words, Scripture attests to its own authority, its own inerrancy, its own reliability and sufficiency. And Peter gives to us here, I'm not going to go into it in depth, but Peter gives to us here five reasons as to why you can trust your Bible. Reason number one, he says, is how it was produced. Verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Peter is saying, what we have written down is reliable. Honest authors. And really, you have to understand and look at the Bible, not as being written by one author, of course, the one author would be God in that sense, but really it's a collection of 66 books written from anywhere from kings to generals to tax collectors to fishermen to doctors written in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, written on three different continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. And yet, in spite of all of that, it is essentially 100% accurate. Because of how it was produced, you can come to the conclusion that only God could do this. Only God could have this many authors saying the same thing. In a different way. Peter says, look, these aren't clever myths. No human could come up with this. Secondly, he says you can trust your Bible because who experienced its truths? He says at the end of verse 16, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. He's saying, in other words, consider the fact that it wasn't the elites of society that God revealed Himself to. In John chapter 1, John speaks about how we saw Christ and we touched Christ. And that is true. It wasn't the elites. It was normal people like you and I who not only heard with their ears and understood with their heads information, but they believed with their hearts and they had conviction. Peter writes here, we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. We didn't just believe what He said. We experienced who He was. Third, Peter says you can trust your Bible Because why it's trusted, there's a number of witnesses. Verse 17, he says, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. What is Peter referring to? He's referring to the transfiguration of Christ that Peter, James, and John saw. And not only them, but two Old Testament witnesses, Moses and Elijah. Peter is saying this tradition that we received was not personal. It was corporate. There were a number of witnesses from the Old Testament and the New Testament. We all together confirmed in this long tradition that this was God speaking to us. That's why you can trust the Bible. And I'll give you another stat. There there has been over 25,000 archaeological digs. Not one of those has contradicted anything that the Bible has said, even though science would love to overturn Scripture. Some ignorantly argue the Bible is full of fabrications. Well, we've already seen the consistency of it, number one. 
And also, to say that it's full of lies, you'd have to have an even greater miracle than God doing this Himself. For all of this to occur, and God not to be behind it, It takes more faith to believe that. Written by various authors in various geographical locations. Translating it from the Greek and the Hebrew. Thousands of years. Scribes copying down the Scriptures. Scribes not knowing the ones that came before them. Scribes not knowing the ones that came after them. Scribes in a monastery that didn't even know scribes of other monasteries because they never left the monastery. It's impossible. If this is a lie... If this is a book of lies, it's the greatest conspiracy ever, and whatever power is behind it, it is a greater power than God. And I don't think you're prepared to say that. The only explanation is that God is behind it. It's not a book of lies. It's the preservation of the Holy Spirit. And this is not like the ancient game of telephone. Or one person starts with a statement, they give it to another, and it goes around the room until it gets to the end. And when you finally get to the end, the person gives the statement that's barely coherent to the first persons. This is not an ancient game of telephone. Bible translators are not working on one manuscript. They are examining various manuscripts, thousands of manuscripts, to get the right meaning. Peter says you can trust your Bible because of how it was produced and because of who experienced its truths and because why it's trusted. Number four, what it claims. In verses 17 and 18, Peter was not alone in this mountaintop experience. He is claiming along with James and John, Moses and Elijah, this was a miracle where they saw God. And you say, well, no one else was there to see it. Yeah, but thousands were there to see the parting of the Red Sea. Thousands upon thousands were there to witness the great flood. Hundreds were there to see the crucifixion of Jesus. Hundreds, 1 Corinthians 15, saw the resurrected Lord. Historical facts and miracles cannot be placed under a microscope. Science is not the final arbiter in the miraculous claims of Scripture. These are faithful witnesses. You can trust your Bible because of how it was produced who experienced these truths, why it can be trusted, what its claims are, and also you can trust it when it's fulfilled. Verse 19, we have the prophetic word made more fully conformed to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men Man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter is saying that one of the greatest contributors to the reliability of the Scriptures is its uncanny ability to fulfill prophecy to the T. And you've seen that as we've gone through Mark's Gospel, Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53, the passion of our Lord to a T fulfilled. I say all of this to say by really way of introduction to verses 9 through 20. I want you to turn back to Mark 16, 9 through 20. Because these verses are what scholars refer to as the long ending of Mark. And that background that I gave you, which is a very summarized version of the minimal of what you need to understand, 
I think is enough to help you understand why there are so many various positions as to whether these verses belong in our Bible or not. Number one, some accept these verses as original to inspired Scripture and original to Mark because they base it, listen to this, on the overwhelming majority of Greek manuscripts that contain it. That is a powerful argument. Not only that, but there were early church fathers going all the way back to the second century that confirmed this was written by Mark. Even Jerome, who died about the year 420, so that would have been the 5th century, he includes in his translation these verses and yet didn't believe they belonged. He didn't think they were inspired but still included them because there was so much debate. Church fathers Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, very early church fathers of the 3rd century viewed this longer ending as original. Now those names might not mean something to you, but the name Joel Beakey might mean something to you. And he holds to this position. He says from his study Bible, and I quote, both from the manuscript record and from the book itself of Mark, these are weighty, there are weighty reasons to view these verses as part of Scripture. And for some people that's enough to say we include it. But there's a second position. Some people believe that Mark didn't write verses 9 through 20, but that Mark also did not intend to end with verse 8. So in other words, this view assumes either Mark never got around to writing his conclusion, or maybe he died, or maybe he finished it, but it was lost. And when you take into account the codexes that were put together, the books that were put together, Mark 16 undoubtedly would have been the last page of that. And oftentimes in history, the first and last page of codexes were missing because of transportation. It was easy for the first and last page to be ripped out. It was, it was the pages that were touched the most. Now these scholars don't like to speculate as to what happened to the lost ending of Mark. But they say that this, what we have in our Bible, verses 9 through 20, is a good summary, summary of um, the resurrection appearances of our Lord. It is good early church tradition to tell us how the church viewed this. But that some scribe, probably in the second century, added this ending to Mark. Mark didn't originally write it. William Hendrickson, the famous reform commentator, has this position, and he says, and I quote, to the extent in which this ending truly reflects what is found elsewhere inside the covers of our Bible, it can be described as a product, however indirectly, of divine inspiration. Since it would be very difficult, perhaps impossible, to defend the thesis that every word of this ending is without flaw, on the other hand, no sermon or doctrine or practice should be based solely upon its context. Or contents. So Hendrickson is saying that this is indirectly inspired by the Holy Spirit, even though Mark didn't write it. Hopefully you're not confused yet, because that leads us to a third view. Others take sort of a radically different approach than the first two positions. They claim that Mark did not write verses 9 through 20, and that furthermore, Mark did intend to end with verse 8. So in other words, verse 8 is the conclusion. That Mark wanted. And those taking this position admit that if you just consider the, the vast majority of manuscripts 
that include it, which is known as external evidence, you might be compelled to believe that it should be included. But when you take internal evidence into account, when you study Mark, you study the vocabulary, you study the grammar, you, you study the syntax, all the things the nerds look at, when you study those things, it becomes clear, they say, Mark could not have written verses 9 through 20. And some of these emphasize the fact that while 16.8 appears to be a, an abrupt ending because it ends with the women being in fear, that's no way to end a book about the life of our Lord. They say that it fits the abrupt beginning of Mark. Mark 1.1, Mark jumps right in. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no introduction. It's abrupt. So they say there's no conclusion. Mark ends abruptly just as he began abruptly. And also this fits all the reactions to Jesus' miracles throughout Mark. They're always mesmerized. They're always amazed. They're always bewildered. They're always fearful. John MacArthur holds this position. He says, and I quote, The external evidence strongly suggests these verses were not originally part of Mark's gospel. The internal evidence from this passage also weighs heavily against Mark's authorship. So he's going completely opposite to Joel Beakey. But MacArthur also sees, probably following the scholar Brooks, that the style and vocabulary is non-Markan. And yet he still says this. He says, since in spite of these considerations of the likely unreliability of verses 9 through 20, it is possible that we could be wrong on the issue. And thus, it is good to consider the meaning of this passage and leave it in the text. MacArthur says, following others, that a second century scribe who looked at verse 8 and thought it was an abrupt ending said, I can do better than that. And so he added the ending, verses 9 through 20. But MacArthur says we leave it in there because it's in most manuscripts, even though Mark probably didn't write it. Sproul, R.C. Sproul, is another one that holds this position. He says a scribe added it. But he says, the doctrines that are found in this passage are consistent with what is taught throughout the New Testament. Thus, we can read and study it with confidence and profit. And then in his commentary, Sproul goes on to give a lengthy explanation of verses 9 through 20. But that leads to a fourth view. Others agree with position 2 in affirming that Mark didn't write verses 9 through 20. And that he did not intend verse 8 to be the conclusion. So this is the opposite of the last view. These same ones say, we need to be careful not to force an argument uh, and concluding why Mark would conclude with verse 8. Because that leaves it open to whatever you want. And he says this, and I quote, very interesting, he says the suggestion, one scholar does, that Mark left the gospel on purpose in verse 8, owes more to modern literary theory and particularly to reader response than to the nature of ancient, ancient texts which with very few exceptions show a dogged proclivity to state conclusions and not suggest them. So he says 16.8 ends with a conjunction. It's the Greek word gar. And in the 60 million words that are included in the world's Greek literary corpus, only three times does a sentence end in gar. And so this scholar says, there's no way Mark ended it this way. There's no way Mark ended it this way. This scholar goes on to say that Mark begins his gospel with a bold assertion. 
So it wouldn't be bizarre for him to end with a statement, or it would be bizarre, excuse me, to end with a statement of fear, given the fact that he began with the the idea that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why would he end in verse 8 with fear? He says in 1539, the centurion says, this must be the Son of God. That's the climax. Now, if we believe that Mark ended in verse 8, that's anticlimactic. The women were afraid. They went away and they didn't tell anyone. Not only that, he says that the kerygma, which was a, an old preaching outline that followed the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord, that that is what Mark follows, and yet he doesn't include resurrection appearances. So it seems insensitive to Mark's readers, he says, who were being persecuted to leave at verse 8, saying the women were fearful and trembling. What would that communicate to those in Rome who received this gospel, who were already fearful? This wouldn't encourage them. So he doesn't believe that Mark ended with verse 8, but he says we need to be very, very careful not to allow existential interpretations in us guessing why Mark ended it this way to come into our minds. You've all been in a Bible study where you go around the room and each person says, well, this passage means this to me. And another person says, oh, that's fine for you, but this passage means this for me. This scholar is saying, fine, Mark did not end with verse 8, but don't read into that some sort of subjective reason as to why. That's dangerous. It's a valid, compelling argument. And then finally, others object to 9 through 20 being original due to theological issues, really related to the modern day snake handling and drinking of poison. So that, scholars basically say, these verses are a patchwork of resurrection appearances, a skeleton that can easily be filled in with other gospel narratives, or another one says, verses 9 through 20, are an early Christian resurrection mosaic. So what in the world are we to think about these verses? Well, number one, I I think that we have to take to heart the last words of Scripture. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. Wow. We're not to mess with Scripture. Here's the reality though. Maybe you've not thought about it. Neither you nor I added verses 9 through 20 in our Bibles. Did you add it? I didn't add it. We're not guilty. We're not textual critics. So we need to be careful not to take away from the words of the book. God preserved it for a reason, whoever wrote it. You have to believe he's sovereign over allowing someone like Jerome, who didn't believe Mark originally wrote it, yet left it in his copy of Scripture. But on the other hand, You need to understand that while the majority of manuscripts have 9 through 20 as originally written by Mark, there are many others that don't, like the earliest, Codex Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. These full portions of the New Testament don't contain it. And several others in Syriac and other translations. You say, well, early church fathers confirmed it was there. Yeah, Justin Martyr did, Tertullian did. But other church fathers were opposed to it being included. 
So while it's true insofar as it goes, that church fathers dealing with manuscripts like Eusebius and Jerome said things like, Almost all the copies end with 16.8 or almost all the Greek manuscripts don't have 9 through 20. You have to understand that they, number one, are revealing the fact that they knew at least some of the manuscripts held it. And number two, the ones who didn't believe it belonged even included it in their translations. So we don't want to be victims here. This isn't some secret the church has kept from you. Scholars have known for thousands of years this is a reality. Hundreds of years. Don't be like the 10-year-old who goes to school and finds out that Santa Claus isn't real and then hates his parents for that. No one's lied to you. And it's plausible, I think, to argue, as MacArthur does and others, that the style of 9 through 20 seems to be different than the rest of Mark. And as MacArthur says, it ends with the fear and trembling of the women It ends abruptly because Mark did that on purpose because all the other reactions in Mark to the miracles of Jesus concern fear and bewilderment. I understand that. But that is a highly subjective and speculative argument that cannot be proven. It may be right, but it's hard to prove. The fact is, we don't know. We don't know. Perhaps it was said best by James White. You know James White, the Reformed apologist, He staunchly disagrees that 9 through 20 was written by Mark. And yet he says this. He says, what we can say then about Mark 16, 9 through 20 is this. We can speculate about how the longer ending arose. Likely an early scribe felt the abrupt ending of Mark lacked the necessary proclamation of the resurrection. So drawing from oral stories and other gospels, he created the longer ending, verses 9 through 20. But White goes on to say, whatever the case may be regarding the genesis of the various endings of Mark, because there are not just the long ending, but there's also a short ending, which is including in some of your translations like the NASB, depending on what year, and then some versions that have the long and the short together. White says, we believe every translation should provide the passage. However, we also believe that every translation should note the fact that there is good reason to doubt the authenticity of the passage, allow the reader of Scripture, he says, to quote 2 Timothy 2.15, to be diligent in their own studies and come to their own conclusions. And that would be my admonition to you. You have a responsibility. Don't just disagree with something. Study it yourself. To follow Sproul, we can affirm what we find here in verses 9 through 20 is instructive for us because it is consistent with what is taught in the rest of the New Testament. Or to echo John MacArthur, it's possible to be wrong. When, if we confirm that 9 through 20 don't belong, it's possible we're wrong. So MacArthur says it's good to consider the meaning of this passage and leave it in the text. Or to follow more closely in line with William Hendrickson, These verses can be described as a product, however indirectly, of divine inspiration. And yet, on the other hand, no sermon, no doctrine, no practice should be based solely on its contents. Now, you come to the conclusion, but here's the reality. The majority of manuscripts have these verses. And I don't want to be guilty of taking away from Scripture. So let's look at them together in the few minutes we have left. There are really five summary truths that are brought out in these verses. We're going to go through this quickly. 
Five summary truths that are taught in the rest of the Scriptures. The first summarized truth is this. It's found in verses 9 through 14. The resurrection doubted. Notice in verse 11, Now when he arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept, but when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. Now if you turn over with me to John chapter 20, we see the fuller account of this in verse 11. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb and she wept. She stooped to look in the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head, one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. After, after or having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be a gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I'll take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. It's funny how the women originally didn't believe that Jesus had been resurrected. And then when Jesus commanded Mary to go tell them, they didn't believe her report. She must have been overwhelmed. The one who had seven demons cast out of her now has standing before her the one who has crushed the serpent underfoot, the great deceiver. And um, in Luke chapter 24, we read more about this. Verse 10, now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. Let me ask you a question. If Scripture was nothing more than fabrications, then why would the writers of Scripture be so honest about the fact that everyone doubted the resurrection? This isn't a book of lies. This is a book that is honest about the feebleness of our flesh. And we read here in verses 12 and 13, After these things he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country, and they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. They did not believe them. Again, in Luke chapter 24, this is a summary of, of what happened. In Luke 24 and verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. He said to them, peace be to you. They were startled and frightened. They thought they saw a spirit. They were troubled. He said, see my hands and my feet. Touch me. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. They're in the upper room and he's going to Jerusalem to reveal himself. In Mark chapter 12, he appears before he goes to the upper room to two of them. These are the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And we read about this in Luke 24 and verse 13. 
That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They're talking with each other about these things, what had happened. They were talking and discussing together, and Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Why is that? I don't know. Mark 16, 12 says that he took another form. You say, how could that happen? Well, he appeared to be a gardener to Mary, and here he appears to just be another traveler. Maybe the weakness of their faith. And they say to Jesus, have you not heard what happened concerning Jesus of Nazareth? And Jesus says, how could you be so slow of heart to believe all of this? Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory and beginning with Moses and all the prophets he interpreted to them and all the scriptures of things concerning himself? So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but he urged, they urged him to stay longer. So this is a summary here in Mark 16 of that account. These two, as verse 13 says, went back and told the rest. And as we read in Luke 24, verses 36 through 40, the disciples did not believe. Not because they couldn't see him with their eyes, but because they refused to see him with their hearts. And verse 14 says, Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves. They were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. Luke 24, he rebukes them in the upper room because of their hardness of heart. Theological truth, like the resurrection, is not hard to believe if you believe in a supernatural God. It's just hard to swallow because it's so amazing and so frightening and so wonderful. But thankfully, they came to believe. The other Gospels tell us they came to believe. Acts tells us they came to believe. Acts tells us that Jesus appeared to them. 1 Corinthians 15 says He appeared to 500. Acts records for us Stephen, the first martyr. They believed. Don't ever doubt the true humanity of Jesus. The Scriptures are so clear about that, aren't they? Mary thought he was a gardener. The two on the road to Emmaus thought he was a traveler because he looked so human because he was human and yet fully divine. Doubts of Jesus' resurrection help us trust the biblical record because it tells us, listen to this, that the Bible is honest about the fact that at the beginning they didn't believe, but they eventually did. And they eventually believed because the Holy Spirit revealed it to them. Just like you believe because the Holy Spirit revealed it to you. And others don't believe because the Holy Spirit didn't reveal it to them. But there's a second summary truth. Not only the resurrection doubted, but number two, the commission delivered. Verses 15 and 16. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. What is this? This is Matthew 28, right? This is the Great Commission. Now Jesus is moving from Jerusalem ahead of the disciples to Galilee where He gives the Great Commission, which, by the way, confirms verse 7. The angel said He's going before you to Galilee. This really supports, I think, that Mark originally wrote verses 9 through 20 because Mark reports in verse 7 
that the angel said he's going before you to Galilee, and now in verse 15, he's speaking about what Jesus said in Galilee, the Great Commission, that the gospel must be proclaimed. And notice this is defined content. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. This is not your personal testimony. This is the faith once for all handed down to the saints, And it doesn't come in the form of a conversation at its most powerful level. It comes through preaching, through the proclamation of the gospel. Not just teaching, not just some informal conversation. Jesus says, I'm giving you a commission to preach the gospel. And until now, the healing and teaching was restricted, as Jesus says, you remember this, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But what happened in chapter 15 when Jesus was on the cross? What tore in the temple? The veil tore in the temple, right? The curtain tore in the temple. And what does Paul say in Ephesians 2.14? He says, he himself is our peace. He's, he's made us both one, Jew and Gentile. He's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So now Jesus says, announce this gospel, not just to the lost sheep of Israel, but to the world. The earthly ministry of Jesus was to the Jew first. The resurrection ministry of Jesus through the apostles and through the church is to the world. Matthew 28 makes that clear. And Paul also says in Romans 15, 8, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that's to the Jews. Why? To show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. But once he did that, he was resurrected. Before he ascends, he says, go and tell the world. And that's what we're to tell the world, the gospel. And in verse 16, it's described. Notice your Bibles. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. That's the gospel. By the way, one of the arguments that's used against verses 9 through 20 being inspired is the fact that verse 16 says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. And they say, well, isn't that teaching baptismal generation? Well, no, it's not teaching baptismal generation. Did you read your Bible? The end of verse 16 says, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. It doesn't say whoever does not believe and is not baptized will be condemned. It says whoever doesn't believe will be condemned. Obviously, someone who believes, beginning of verse 16, and is saved, needs to be baptized. But if someone believes and is not baptized, they are not condemned. You're only condemned if you don't believe. We believe in sola fide, faith alone. We're all familiar with John three sixteen. God so loved the world, right? You know what else Jesus said? He said whoever believes in him is not condemned, John 3.18. But whoever does not believe in him is condemned already. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned. That's all verse 16 is saying. That's all it's saying. This isn't teaching baptismal regeneration. You'd have to read that into the text. But there's a third summary truth. Not only the resurrected doubted, or excuse me, the resurrection doubted. Secondly, the commission delivered. Number three, the confirmation decreed in verses 17 through 18. And these signs will accompany those who believe. What were these signs? These were the accompanying signs that were associated with the apostles. To quote Acts 2.43, many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. What were they? 
What were the signs that confirmed that the preaching and teaching of the gospel came from God? Well, number one was exorcism. Verse 17, in my name they will cast out demons. You say, did that happen? Well, of course it happened. Acts chapter 5 and verse 16, the people gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. They were all healed by the apostles, just like Jesus cast demons out. Or Acts chapter 8, verse 7, for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Or in chapter 19 and verse 12, these are just summary statements by Luke to confirm what's written here in Mark. But in Acts chapter 19 and uh, verse 12 is another summary statement, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out. I mean, they thought that the handkerchief of Paul had power because of the sign of being able to cast demons out. It's amazing. That is the record of Scripture. But it wasn't just the exorcisms. Notice secondly in verse 17, a second sign, they will speak in new tongues. That happened on Pentecost, right? Acts chapter 2, verse 4. It happened also in Caesarea, Acts 10, verse 46. It happened in Ephesus, Acts 19, 6. It wasn't just in Pentecost that some spoke tongues, another language that they had never learned. It was also Caesarea and Ephesus. What was this? It was a sign to confirm what the, what the apostles preached was true. So the exorcisms were signs. Remember, Paul had a little slave girl chasing him around, annoying him, and finally he turned around, irritated, and said, come out of her. Instant power, exorcism, tongues. And then notice verse 18. Third, they will pick up serpents with their hands. Turn with me over to Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28. There's an interesting account. You're probably familiar with it. This is Paul on Malta. Verse 1, after we were brought safely through we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us uh, unusual kindness, Paul says. I'm reading Acts 28.2. For they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. So they're building a fire and guess what happens? Paul was gathering a bundle of sticks. You've done that. And he put them on the fire. You've done that. Hopefully this hasn't happened to you. A viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. He's been cursed, they're saying. Though he's escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Verse 5, however, he shook off the creature into the fire and Paul suffered no harm. What was this? This was a sign that even this venomous snake could not hurt the apostle Paul. Notice what else in verse 18, the fourth sign. And they will drink deadly poison and it will not hurt them. And uh, the fifth one, the end of verse 18, they will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. I already read Acts 5.16, which speaks of the sick that were healed. You can read in Acts 9, verses 32 and 34, Peter, along with John, healed the lame beggar. Chapter 14, verses 8 through 10, healings in Lystra. I mean, the list is endless. The list just goes on and on of the power of the apostles to heal. 
You even have an expression in Luke 10, 19. Jesus says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. I don't see anything strange in these verses that makes me think they contradict what the rest of the Bible teaches. You say, well, what about these signs? Well, B.B. Warfield said these gifts were part of the credentials of the apostles as the authoritative agents of God in founding the church and they necessarily passed away. In other words, Acts is a transitional period where the signs were there briefly until the completion of the canon of Scripture. Jonathan Edwards says the same thing. These extra gifts were given in order to the founding and establishment of the church in the world, but since the canon of Scripture has been completed and the church fully found and established, these extraordinary gifts have ceased. Guess who else are considered cessationists? Matthew Henry, Charles Spurgeon, George Whitfield. Abraham Kuyper, John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, Joel Beakey. The list is endless if you're reformed to believe that these signs cease. But they nevertheless were a confirming validation in the transition in the book of Acts. Now, some don't think verses 9 through 20 are part of the original because of bad theology that's been developed. Some of that's been developed even in my home state of West Virginia, in Appalachia, with snake handlers and the drinking of poison. Well, obviously, that's bad theology. But why would you give credence to that that bad theology by giving those people credit from this verse? That's not what is being said. They'll pick up serpents with their hands and not be harmed? Paul didn't touch that viper on purpose, did he? This wasn't a matter of faith. He's just gathering wood. God spared him and healed him, not because he was trying to be brave and heroic and demonstrate his faith, but, but God healed him to show that God was on his side so these pagans could see who the true God was. Today's snake handlers What they're doing is not a sign of faith. It's a spectacle in its stupidity. Interestingly, that word serpents in verse 18, they will pick up serpents. If you have a copy of the Greek Septuagint, which most of you probably don't, but if you do, that is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. That word serpent is the same word that is used in Genesis 3 to describe the serpent in the wilderness. So could it be that this verse is speaking metaphorically that in the age of salvation, the curse of the serpent has been overcome. After all, Jesus said, you will have power to tread serpents and scorpions. Clearly figurative. But if you take it figuratively, fine. If you take it literally, fine. You still have Acts 28 where Paul was not harmed. I see no contradiction. And with the respect to drinking poison, in verse 8, 18 They will pick up serpents and it will not harm them. That is a matter of fact. But notice Jesus sort of, he's a little bit gentler. He says, and if they drink any deadly poison, it won't hurt them. It's the word if. Well, did anyone do this? Interestingly, Eusebius reports, the man who was not chosen to be the 12th disciple, his name was Justin Barsabbas, Barnabas, 
He was forced to drink poison as a result of persecution, and it did not harm him. He lived. Eusebius reports this. Was this Justin there when Jesus said this, and then when that happened, he realized what Jesus said had come true? There's a fourth summary statement we probably need to get to, and that is the ascension and session described. Verse 19, so, when, so then the Lord Jesus, after He had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. This is the ascension and session of our Lord. He was lifted up to the right hand of God and He sat down. These are cardinal truths to the Christian faith. Included in creeds. Luke 24, while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Acts 1-2, until the day when he was taken up. Acts 1-11, he said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, will come down in the same way, just as you saw Him go up into heaven. What did Jesus say? He said, David said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit here, I'll make your enemies your footstool. Quoting from Psalm 110. Acts 2.36, Peter said, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So the ascension to the right hand, Jesus sitting down, His session, His authority, His sovereignty is what is taught throughout the rest of Scripture. Nothing contradictory here in verse 19 except what is found in every major creed and found throughout the pages of the Scriptures. Jesus is King of kings. Jesus is Lord of lords. His enemies have been placed under His feet. He was taken up and He sat down at the right hand of God. So these verses give to us summary truths that are found throughout the rest of the New Testament. The resurrection doubted, it's honest about that. The commission delivered, the confirmation decreed in these signs, the ascension and session described. Finally, fifth, the submission determined. Notice verse 20, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. It's not that just that Jesus worked with them, He worked in them. You remember John 14, 19, Jesus said, The Spirit of truth dwells in you and will be with you. What did Jesus say in the Great Commission passage of Matthew 28? He said, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. They knew that. Jesus was with them. So as verse 20 says, They went out and preached everywhere, and what the Lord said was true. He worked with them. And we could say he worked in them to confirm the message by accompanying signs. In other words, their submission was determined. They would not turn back. They would not look back. They would only believe. They would never doubt again. We move forward, not alone. That's the point. We are the church militant. Don't let it escape your notice. And they, verse 20, went out. They were determined to submit to General Jesus' orders. They marched forth in boldness because they knew they were not marching forth 
alone. And, and the same is true of you and I. We go out because we know He's already there. We've been indwelt by the Spirit of God who is sovereign over every soul that will ever be saved. And with confidence, we preach the Gospel. That's how verse 20 ends. So maybe we shouldn't miss the so-called lost ending of Mark. That's a great ending in my opinion. Verse 8, they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment, seized them. They said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Is that encouraging to you? It, It certainly wouldn't have been to Mark's original readers who were being persecuted. But how emboldening is verse 20? The apostles, the church went out. The Lord worked with them, confirmed their message. Now we know the rest of the story. And we're part of that story. The power that you have seen manifested in the life of the Lord Jesus in both His earthly life and His resurrection, in giving the Great Commission, and then ascending in the boldness of the early church, gives us hope. What is more uplifting and emboldening than to see Jesus lifted up to heaven to sit at the right hand of God? It reminds us of two words. He wins. He wins. There's no better ending than that. How in the world could I improve on that? So I won't improve on it. Like Mark, as some people think, I just won't have a conclusion to my last sermon in Mark. Because you can't conclude better than that. This is our hope. This is our gospel. We can't barely respond to that because it's so overwhelming. We silently sit in joy and the worship of our hearts in awe of this King of kings and Lord of lords. The one who has preserved every word of Scripture. Father, we thank You for not just the Gospel of Mark, but every word that proceeds out of Your mouth through the Holy Spirit. All the epistles, all the prophetic books, all the poetry, all the narratives of Scripture, the Old Testament and the New Testament testify to Your power, to Your glory, to the truth of the Gospel, the death, burial, resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We never want to be guilty of leaving out Your words. So whatever conclusion we come to, may we all come to this conclusion and that is that You reign supreme over every detail. That's our hope. That's our confidence. Not in how many manuscripts are found. Although that helps, but our confidence is ultimately in what You have given to us and what the Holy Spirit has been pleased to reveal to Your elect people. We thank You for that. So as we close our study in Mark, we move on to the next thing. May we not soon forget what we have learned as we have sat at the feet of Jesus Christ. And may we realize no matter what we read in the Bible, we're sitting at the feet of Jesus because He's the second person of the Godhead. Truly God. Truly man. This is His Word. The same yesterday, today, and forevermore. We praise You in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com. 